We continue to worship God now as we come to Him in His Word in the Gospel. Today's Gospel reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. I invite you, as you're able, to stand for the reading. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. In this third installment of Walking in the Light, as we come to John's letter here in 1 John, he wants us to be clear about who we are and whose we are. I distinctly remember, I distinctly remember each time I held my children for the first time and held them in my arms and looked into their face. And I knew that come what may, I would love them and they would be mine. They were and are gifts of God. That sense of being together, that love that pours out in that moment, isn't the experience all of us have It's not all of our stories about being claimed at our birth. Some of us have quite different stories. My story, when I was born, is quite different as well. In fact, I think a fight broke out in the hallway after I was born. So that's just (laughs) the brokenness of our humanity, the brokenness of sin. And even though hatred and sinfulness breaks in in this dark world, we are reminded today with a powerful proclamation from John, then darkness doesn't have the last word. And so, as we have heard in these preceding weeks, we walk in the light in repentance, in turning towards God, repenting of our sin and receiving that grace in obedience to His Word, and in love, and in abiding in Christ. So as we turn now the page into chapter 3, here in this very first verse, God has what I think is mind-blowing, heart-transforming Word for us. Therefore, we're going to spend the bulk of this sermon just in that first verse. And we'll touch on the rest because there's so much good stuff here. It's so rich to help us realize what God is doing in our lives. But I I want you to hold on to the astonishment of what 
John is saying here, what God is proclaiming to us. To help us do that, I want to tell you a story. A seminary professor and his, and his wife were on vacation. They were in Tennessee. And they were in a local diner enjoying some good time together. And he noticed down the way that there was a happy old codger stopping at, seemed like, every table to visit. Seemed like he knew everyone. Or if, if maybe he owned the place. I don't know. But he was stopping at every table and wanting to enjoy their vacation privately. He was kind of hoping, I hope he doesn't stop here. But, you know, he came by their table after all. Asked them who they were and where they're from and hoping to kind of end the conversation. The professor said, well, I'm a professor of homiletics, which means a professor that teaches pastors to preach. He's like, oh, you teach preachers. And so instead of Moving on, he sat down. <laughs> he said, you know, I was about 12 years old as he begins into a story. And I, I wasn't all, it was a hard time for me. My mom wasn't married when I was born and my dad wasn't around and people had a name for me that wasn't very nice. And just about everywhere I went, I'd hear that name and kids would snicker and laugh. And even at church, I could feel the stairs. So when I was about 12, I would go to church, but I would sneak in kind of in the back after it already started and scoot out right as it ended so I wouldn't have to visit or greet folk. Well, the preacher kind of surprised him one week, finished up kind of fast, and the benediction went quick, and he got stuck in line having to shake the hand of the pastor. And feeling the stairs of people around him as he stood in that line was... Hard to take for this young guy. And he came up to the preacher to shake his hand. And he said, oh, young man, I recognize you. I know whose son you are. And face turning red, thinking, oh, here it goes again. The pastor said to him, you, son, are a child of God. As he shared at that uh, diner table uh, now as an old man, he said, my life was never the same. My identity was not cursed. Or what all those other frowning eyes were, now I knew I was a child of God. Finished the story and moved on to the next table. And that professor then remembered, oh, this guy's name was Ben Humper. I think I recall, oh, it all came together. He had just met the fa very famous governor of the state of Tennessee, whose life had been transformed because of the word that we're reading here today in 1 John. Astonishing transformation. That's what's going on here in verse 1. Life changing transformation. Unbelievable announcement. Even more unbelievable than the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs in the World Series. <laughs> John announces lavish. I love how the NIV translates it. it. How much love does the Father lavish upon us? To give us a new identity, children of God. 
If you'd lived in the first century in a Roman province, you'd understand the image that John was picking up on here as he was writing this text. He's talking about adoption. And adoption wasn't just understood as a a child coming into a family to be cared for. It had more to do with birthright and inheritance. And in a first century adoption, the old passes away. If you had debt, if you had anything that held you back in that old identity, you were free from it. And now, being put on a new family, a new identity, a new name, a new inheritance. That is what God gives us in this letter of 1 John. The old has passed away, Paul writes in Corinthians, and the new has come. We have a new identity. I want you to grasp the power and astonishment and the wonder of this declaration and that there is power in this inheritance. Barclay, the commentator, says that in the previous chapters, we were talking about divine fellowship, but now here we're talking about divine birthright. John uses this word, potapen, which would have been familiar to his hearers around the shores of these Roman provinces because it's a word that would be cried out when a ship would come to shore and they wondered who was on board. It literally means what country are you from? There was astonishment and wonder and excitement. What new things are about to come on our docks? What new ventures? What new Gifts and treasures are about to enter here. And so when we hear see what kind, it's that word potatin that what new adventure, what astonishing thing is about to come here. And what astonishing thing is coming here? It's lavish love. It's new identity. It's the proclamation, pronouncement from God, the Spirit of God Himself, that we are, in fact, all those in Christ Jesus are children of God. And so out of an astonishing birthright, with all our debt in the past now paid, we now live for His kingdom with all the rights and privileges that come with that calling with this holy, royal, lavish love, this new identity. We seek first His kingdom. We repent. We receive. We obey. We love. Our identity is not defined by our success, our jobs, the sports teams we root for, our political party, our gender, or even our family, however beautiful and wonderful it is. Our identity is found as children of God. And that's where our lives come forth from. And as we move from verse 1 to the rest of this chapter, we hear a movement from what Mike Breen calls covenant to kingdom. 
from God's promise as we see it played out throughout the Scripture, oftentimes God's covenant comes and then we're invited to live that out in His kingdom. And now in verse 2, John reminds his readers, the beloved, that though we are currently children of God and there are implications for us and then how we should live because of that, we have not yet fully realized who we shall be because Christ has yet to come again. We have not yet fully arrived, but we have our eyes set on God's covenant as now His children to make an impact for His kingdom. And right away He tells us when we live like that, the world its not going to get all warm and fuzzy. We will be hated for it. For in Christ, in our clear identity, the world does not understand. They hated Him for it. They'll hate us for it. But the mark of what it means to be one in Christ with this identity as children of God, as Luther put it, is to abide in love and should be the motive for us as Christians. So although we have not yet arrived in who we will fully be, and although the world will hate us, our motive will be love. So what John does here is he takes us back to the preceding chapter and reminds us, remember, we are called to love and we are called to obey. So why loop around? Why repeat? Luther reminds us that don't don't forget that he's speaking to a heresy. He's speaking to a church who has been lied to. He says, John says, my dear little children, don't be deceived. He doesn't want us like the Gnostics did to think it doesn't matter how we live. He wants to remind us how serious and important it is that we are motivated and moved by love and how serious God's righteousness is and how serious not sinning is. And so the first emphasis that we'll talk about in the remaining part of this chapter is love. There's no argument against love. People can hate on Tim Tebow, whether he's a, a good football or baseball player. But there's no argument about the way in which he generously shares his wealth and visits folks in hospitals and prays for folk. And people even hate him on that. But you can't argue the love that he's pouring out. We might not be liked for it, but the love will be the mark of Christ in this world as we live like that. Jesus puts it this way in verse 16, but this is how we know what love is, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, our friends, one translation calls it. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love that transforms us and those who receive it, even if we're hated for it. When I do marriage counseling, I tell folks if they want a 50-50 marriage, then they're on a path towards divorce. Because there is no 50-50. There's only all in. There's only all in, 100%. 
There may be days that you can give, you need to give 200% because your beloved can't give anything. It's sacrificial love. This is what we're called to do and to bear witness to. And when he talks about not loving in word or talk, but with action and deed, he's not saying not to use our words, not to tell the story of who Jesus is. He's saying to back it up with love. And so John uses the example of Cain and Abel, who should have loved each other, but were marred instead by hatred. Cain's disobedience and disregard for sin. And that gets us to John's next emphasis here, that when we sin, we are walking in the footsteps of the devil. Let's not pull any punches here. God is telling us that He takes sin very seriously. And we should not sin if we're walking in the light. Crucial for us to understand here is, as he explains it for us, with the image of Cain and Abel. Cain disregarded God's word, put an offering out, and it wasn't because one offering was of different elements than other. It had to do with Abel offering first fruits and being blessed for it, and Cain offering all what I've got and not paying attention to God's law and then being envious because he wasn't blessed, and then hating his brother for it. Walking in the light involves walking in the truth and following God's law and rule and righteousness. Now let me pause here for a moment and say this. There's, because of this text, there's been a, a debate among Christians through the generations. Well, is John saying that I'm not a Christian if I sin? Like, if, if I've sinned, that means I'm not really a Christian? Some have said that. And to that, we can see in the text a resounding no, because we hear in verse, in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins. So he assumes that those walking in the light will sin. In fact, in chapter 2, we heard last week, he said, I, I don't want you to sin, but if you do, you have an advocate. We, as we heard in verse 2 of this chapter, we have not yet arrived. Sin is a part of our lives until Christ comes, and so we need repentance, we need to turn again. But that's not a license to sin. It's a call to live into a new identity and not sin. And when we do, to seek repentance. So John instead is, to, is speaking about an assurance of faith. I'll get back to that. But you see, even when, we, even when we seek to live righteously before God, we get hated for that too. A teenage girl was out with her friends when a decision was made by the group to go to a particular place and do certain things that she felt was wrong, she was uncomfortable with. And she had just a few seconds of hesitation, and she decided, no, I, I need you to take me home. And the snickering and the laughter happened quickly, and one of the guys in the group says, what, are you, are you afraid your dad's going to hurt you if you get caught? She said, no, 
I'm afraid I'll hurt my father if I do this. That should be the attitude and action of Christians today. It's not that you're afraid that God will hurt you in your sin, but you love Him so much that you don't want to hurt Him. David Allen put it like that, and I, I, and I think another way to think of it is that we don't want to just avoid the darkness when we walk in the light. We want to live into the new identity that He's calling us to. To glorify our Father who is in heaven. Who gives us our family identity. And so, as John writes in verses 19-24, to he writes about an assurance of faith. That having been recipients of grace... People who repent and turn towards God. We then obey and love God and love others. And that obedience and that love become marks of our true faith. A reminder of the assurance that we have as children of God. What do children of God look like? They repent. They obey. They don't go where just the crowd goes. They fight the urges of the devil in the dark, whether it's for you in a bottle or on a screen, or playing the 50-50 game with your spouse, or feeling like you didn't get treated right. We lay it all aside in repentance. And we come to this new identity as children of God. In Colossians, Paul says that we're called to put on Christ. He's picking up on the same image of adoption, you see, because in that same first century world, when you were adopted and you got a new identity, you got a new toga. They put a new mark of you, a new clothing. And so they put it on you, and now you were a new person. And so we are called to do the same, to put on Christ. And let our light shine before others and glorify our Father who's in heaven as we proclaimed at your baptism. And see, and see what love the Father has lavished on you that you should be called children of God and the Spirit of God pronounces that is what you are. So let's walk in the light together. Amen.